In the hit show, The Bear, Jeremy Allen White plays Carmen, a troubled chef whose family trauma drives him to excel within the extreme working environments of fine dining kitchens. And uncool, I, I made this plan where I was going to go work in all the best restaurants in the world. And I got the shit kicked out of me. And I separated herbs, and I shucked oysters. In the scene you're hearing now, Carmen is opening up about the deep motivations driving his career. In my fingernails and in my eyes, and my skin was dry and oily at the same time. I had calluses on my fingers from the knives, and my stomach was fucked. And it was everything. I felt like I could speak through the food, like I could communicate through creativity and that kind of confidence. You know, like I was finally, I was, I was good at something that was so new and that was so exciting and I just wanted him to know that and fuck, I just wanted him to be like, good job. Carmen's monologue leaves unclear as to whether cooking at this super elite level is a creative outlet for his trauma or whether his experience in some of the best restaurants in the world amounts to a masochistic odyssey. In this way, the bear raises a question. If being an elite chef isn't simply about feeding people, then who or what is it all for? You're listening to The Full English, the show that sees the world through food. And this is a pervert's guide to fine dining. It's an episode all about the world that Carmen comes from before he embarks upon the gentrification of his family's sandwich shop in The Bear. I'm Lewis Bassett, I'm a chef and a researcher, and I invite you to join me as we try to understand the weird world of fine dining. Mixing and sound design comes from Forest DLG. I'm Andy Haler, and I'm a restaurant critic. My sort of speciality is really uh, Michelin-starred restaurants, and in particular, three-star Michelin restaurants. Ask anyone in London who you should speak to about fine dining, and Andy Haler's name will come up. Andy runs the oldest restaurant review website in the world, which contains reviews of some 1,700 restaurants, each of them meticulously ranked with a score out of 20. I basically have four criteria that I use for when I'm looking at a particular dish. Um, and the score I give to the restaurant is simply n- nothing more than the arithmetic average of the of the dish scores. So if, if I have three dishes and they score 14 and 15 and 16, then I'll score the restaurant 15. Um, in terms of the dish, what I'm looking for are four things. Looking for, um, first, the, the presentation. We, we eat with our eyes, as the saying goes. I'm looking for the... Andy is methodical about how he reaches his conclusions. What's good and what isn't is based on his strict method that takes into account presentation, quality of the ingredients, preparation and the recipe. ...size of the turbot, which makes a difference to the quality of the flavour in general. So, for example, in that case, bigger turbots are better. So, So, yeah, my next question was about fine dining and if that's a term that means anything to you and, and what would it mean? Like, how would you define fine dining? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's something which is a you know, special occasion kind of food, I, I guess. Um, you know, what would it mean? I'm sure you can look it up in a, in a dictionary. I'm sure we'll talk about expensive racetracks. I don't think it necessarily has to be expensive, but it often is for sure. It'll be about the amount of effort that's gone into the dishes. So if you, you read some of more and more detailed reviews. So, for example, recently went to the Dysart, uh, which is a 
a sort of favourite place of mine. You know, there's one sauce that took, sort of, I think, sort of five days to make. This is the kind of thing that, you know, that's to me, that's what I associate with fine dining. It's that sort of degree of additional effort that's required by the kitchen to produce something special rather than just, you know, grilling a steak or frying some fish and chips or something. I mean, this is a special event kind of place, kind of place you might go on your birthday or anniversary or something. As Andy suggests, I did look it up in the dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary, and here's what it says. Fine dining, the action or practice of eating well, the action or practice of dining in a formal setting, typically an expensive restaurant, where high quality or gourmet food is served. Thinking about this definition, Surely it's the expensive bit that matters most. The dictionary mentions a formal setting. But what does a formal setting mean when some restaurants, including ones with free Michelin stars, allow you to dress however you want and actually require you to eat food from the table rather than from plates? What does formality mean in this context? Why not a tablecloth that we can eat off of? Why do you have to eat with a fork or a spoon? And why does it have to be served on a plate or in a bowl? Why can't we come up with something new? That was Chef Grant Ackett of Alinea. Back to the dictionary definition of fine dining, and more fundamentally, what does it even mean to eat well? Andy has a method for what he would define as high quality and gourmet, but my wager is that what we think of as high quality and gourmet are often things that are simply expensive. My claim is that price determines taste, not the other way around. The Ritz in Mayfair is one of the most highly ranked restaurants on Andy's list. Andy loves the Ritz. In fact, he's reviewed the restaurant 47 times. And one of the reasons the Ritz receives 18 out of 20 on Andy's website is down to the quality of the ingredients. For example, if you get longer scenes of the Ritz, and that's one of their signature dishes that's quite often on the menu, you know, one thing that's very noticeable is that they will often bring up a dish with the longestines still in them while they're alive. And they're, you know, they're moving about and then they take it off to the kitchen and, and, and cook them. And the reason they do that is that a lot of restaurants in London, the longestines will be either frozen or by the time they get them, they'll have died and will not be, you know, obviously taste quite so fresh, quite so good as when they were in moving around actively just a, you know, a minute or two before they're served. You know, even within luxury ingredients, there's huge variations. So, say, you know, very, very large turbot costs twice as much roughly per, per kilo as a small turbot. You know, a white truffle costs dramatically more than an autumn truffle, which is, you know, it's kind of a truffle, but it doesn't really have the same fragrance and so on and so on. For Andy, as for many restaurant critics, price is a reflection of quality. A bigger turbot is worth more than a smaller one because a bigger turbot tastes better than a smaller one. But is that true? Because it's my sense that what we think of as more or less tasty is often culturally defined. Sometimes, delicate flavours are seen as highly valued, such as the delicate taste of white crab meat, while sometimes a slightly stronger taste and a meatier flesh is seen as important, as in the case of a large turbot. But the truth is that bigger turbots are rarer than smaller ones. And so bigger turbots cost a lot more than smaller ones. That's why bigger turbots are served at the Ritz. Or take fresh langoustines, 
would the fine dining setting consider them so prize-worthy if they were as abundant and as easy to find as houseflies? Would pungent white truffles be ceremoniously shaved onto plates of beef fillet if truffles were as easy to grow as potatoes, and beef fillet as ubiquitous as white rice? Desserts at the Ritz are decorated with gold, not iron. Andy tells me that you can eat a good meal, or a high-quality meal, let's use words from the dictionary definition of fine dining, for £15 per person at Diwana Del Pori, an Indian restaurant in King's Cross. Um, so, you know, it's entirely possible to eat well in a, in a cheap restaurant, it's, um, but you wouldn't describe it as fine dining. <laughs> so if good food can be cheap, in the world of fine dining, it's the price tag of an item that largely determines our ideas of good or bad, rough or fine. Price makes taste, not the other way around. So conspicuous consumption is the idea, underneath it is a sense of wanting to think through people's motivations. I'm Erin McDonnell, and I am the Notre Dame Duloc and Kellogg Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Notre Dame. And one version of motivation that we often tell ourselves is that I consume things because I myself want it. I am intrinsically motivated. In a vacuum, if no one else saw me, I would still choose to consume this thing. That's the relationship I have with chocolate. No one needs to see me eat chocolate for me to want to eat chocolate. But conspicuous consumption is the idea that your primary motivation for that consumption is actually social. It's outside of you. If you were locked in a black box and no one else saw you consume it, you might not choose to consume that thing. That part or perhaps the lion's share of the value you derive from consuming it is being seen to consume it by others and the status that that, that might accrue to you because of that. Take Balenciaga. The clothing brand charges £800 for a hoodie that for all intents and purposes looks the same as the one on sale by any other sports brand, produced by low-paid labour in just the same way. But by wearing a hoodie with a Balenciaga logo, you get to say, hey, look at me, I'm a rich dickhead. That's one of the ways that fine dining works as well. At the same time, as Erin tells me, how some people choose to express their superiority has widened. Today, production cycles have gotten a lot shorter. So the ability of, let's say, whether it's fashion or food or something else, the ability of imitators to catch up to and provide at lower cost access to consuming things that the higher class had through more a bespoke or artisanal production when it was first produced, that time lag has gotten much shorter. In Victorian England, if you wanted to reproduce a certain fashion with a certain fabric, it was very, very hard to catch up to the costs of the modiste's skills or the transport and production costs of that high-end fabric. And today it can be done almost instantaneously. Erin suggests that as it becomes easier for larger numbers of ordinary people to gain the traditional material markers of distinction, as it becomes easier for more people to acquire goods made in factories, Contemporary markers of distinction have grown to encompass more and more bespoke commodities, as well as intangible goods, including ethics. This is the voice of Dan Barber in the Netflix series Chef's Table. And usually there's a lot of interest for people who come here on, what am I eating? Where's it from? Who's growing it? How's it getting to me? And what's this about? And that, and that's a starting point for a conversation. Heirloom tomato with basil seed, followed by Jim Meyer's Indigo Rose Experimental Tomatoes and Smoked Goat Cheese. not just about the dish. It's about what the radish represents. It has to add up to something larger than a plate of food. Vegetables from the farm. 
A single udder butter comes from the milk of one single cow. Uh, this is from three cows at Blue Hill Farm. I invite you to taste each individual butter and see the differences you find. Thank you very Thank much. You. Would it also apply, because I've often thought this about like um, the kind of green nature of some of these fine dining places where they're like, where they're farm to table. And in a sense, ethics has become a form of distinction in the sense that uh, if you were less well off, let's say 100, 200 years ago, you're going to have to depend much more on the land. And that's just the way you're going to eat. But today, it's like, if you're less well off, you're going to have to eat a lot of like cheap processed food. But like, actually, having the ethical and healthy way of eating is like the high class distinct thing to do. Yes, because it's also an expensive thing to do now. So this is an area where you're absolutely right. If you are on a very constrained budget in America, you are probably going to be consuming a lot of processed food, a lot of fast food, um, food that probably has a lot of preservatives in it because you can't afford the cost of food waste in quite the same way. And higher class eating right now has moved in a direction that in some ways is more reminiscent of 19th century farm practices and food practices. So the idea that the restaurant has a personal relationship with a farm in some cases. So like the French Laundry, if you go out to the French Laundry, they have a garden where they grow quite a lot of their own produce just across the street. You can walk through the garden where they have their tomatoes growing that will be used that night in dishes produced at the French Laundry. That the use often of more artisanal agricultural production and the willingness or the desire to pay for those things is certainly a feature of not only fine dining, but cultural distinction through consumption. You know, we're very fortunate here at the French Laundry to have our own garden. It really is a, a place for us to also to teach this idea of respect for ingredients. You know, many of our, our young chefs still go over to the garden and spend some time there. So they understand what it takes to, to grow a carrot, what it takes to have a, a hen house with eggs. It's the, the level of respect and knowledge that's around our food now is, is, is much more. According to our contemporary markers of taste and class, Fine dining not only serves caviar and truffles, but a kind of ethics of eating, ranging from locally sourced, high-quality, high-welfare produce to food that is meant to confer on you the agency for progressive change, even where all you are doing is eating a wildly expensive dinner. This is Rasmus Monk from the restaurant Alchemist. 70% of all living animals with wings is in some way trapped in, in cages. So we wanted to illustrate that so literally in front of the guests, they need to kind of free this chicken from the cages. This is the dish where like a lot of people get a lot of like reaction. And this is the thing that's uh, getting a lot of people actually to cry in the evening, but also to uh, take uh, action when they mm. come home. And I think that that's mm. quite interesting. In this form, fine dining today allows the consumer to partake in an apparently virtuous experience. Only as one that hardly anyone can afford. While the parameters of conspicuous consumption may have shifted to encompass non-tangible goods like health, seasonality, locality, and even activism, the price of fine dining renders these consumable virtues exclusive, which for conspicuous consumers is exactly the point. I don't like your food. What did you say? I said, I don't like your food. 
and I would like to send it back. You're listening to a clip from The Menu where Anya Taylor-Joy's character Margot interrupts the climatic ending of the film to ask the head chef of the uber-exclusive fine dining restaurant Hawthorne for a cheeseburger. Every dish you serve tonight has been some intellectual exercise rather than something you want to sit and enjoy. The scene shows the head chef, played by Ralph Fine, taking a nostalgic pause from his life spent obsessing over the food cooked for a tiny elite who have the money and the contacts to eat it. This is a clientele of rich people who, the film wants us to know, don't deserve it. You know what I'd really like? Tell me. A cheeseburger. We can do a cheeseburger. A real cheeseburger. Cooking a cheeseburger takes Fine's character back to his humble roots. He cooks it with a smile on his face, and it arrives without complicated sauces, engineering or witchcraft. There are crinkle-cooked chips, which look like they came out of the freezer. Margot pays $9.95 for the burger, and for a moment, we leave the suffocating, violent and obsessive world of fine dining. But a cheeseburger can never be fine dining. For starters, like turbot and caviar, or non-tangible elite goods like green ethics, it's also defined by the vast amounts of skilled labour that go into making boutique, hyper-artisanal meals. Even if the best meal of your life is a burger cooked without much fuss and served with pre-prepared frozen chips, it couldn't qualify as fine dining because fine dining requires hard, intensely skilled work and lots of it. This is Andy Haler again, talking about the Ritz. Um, I think there are over 50 chefs in the kitchen for a 65-seat uh, restaurant. Uh, it was an extremely high ratio. And that gives them the ability to do things like make stocks and sauces the old-fashioned way by having a you know guy skimming a huge pot for, uh, of stock for, for hours and hours on end, whereas most restaurants, including a lot of starred restaurants now, will just buy their sauces in. You're listening to The Full English. We're currently planning two new series of regular fortnightly episodes on everything from why we love supermarkets to how Jamie Oliver changed the way we eat. And to help make that happen, head over to patreon.com forward slash full English. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash full English. And if you like this episode, please, as always, give it a share. Thanks for listening. The price tag of fine dining creates sky-high expectations from customers. While the combination of competition between restaurants and the obsessions of chefs drives this expectation higher and higher. Eventually, you reach a point where the best restaurant in the world is forced to close because it can't meet the expectations it created without a business model that depends on free labor and extreme work. Food lovies need to book their tables soon if they want to eat at the best restaurant in the world in Copenhagen as it's set to close at the end of 2024. The Danish eating house Noma has been awarded the world's best restaurant five times in its 20-year history. The chef and owner René Redzepi says he's going to turn it into a gastronomic laboratory dedicated to food innovation. Noma 
widely seen as the best restaurant in the world, is set to close this year. According to its chef, Carmona, Rene Redzepi, the restaurant became unsustainable financially and emotionally. Redzepi told the press that, as an employer and as a human being, it just doesn't work. So even at the best restaurant in the world, or especially at the best restaurant in the world, the pressure to provide the finest ingredients and superior cooking skills takes an almighty toll. Early last year, a former intern at Noma described to the New York Times how she worked for three months without pay, and where all she did is assemble edible beetles out of fruit leather. She also told the newspaper that she was forced to work in silence. The intern's experience reveals the contradiction between innovation and consistency in leading fine dining restaurants. Being constantly innovative, while also attempting to be consistent, results in interns, ostensibly meant to be there to learn how to cook, taking on repetitive and highly specialized tasks, from removing their eyes from hundreds of cod's heads to hours spent picking herbs and flowers. According to the Financial Times, prior to the pandemic, Noma had 30 unpaid interns working alongside 34 paid chefs. In June 2022, Noma announced that it planned to pay its interns beginning this year. However, six months after that announcement, Red Zeppi declared that the restaurant was also set to close. That monotonous, sometimes unpaid labor crops up in fine dining underlines the remarkable fact that many of the most prized places to eat in the world fail to make any money. Here's Andy Haler again. I remember talking to the owner of you know, the restaurant. It's, it's gone now, but it's called uh, Anima in uh, near Liverpool Street, um, which was a very good Italian restaurant some years back. And uh, I just happened to bump into the the owner, and I said, "Well, you know, how's it like from a financial perspective?" And he he told me the somewhat old, uh, hackneyed line, really, that um, the best way to make a small fortune in the restaurant business is to start with a large fortune. Um, and uh, fortunately, he did start with a large fortune. So, you know, but I mean, essentially, uh, restaurants uh, don't make a great deal of money. If you look at things you can be sure about, I guess, are publicly quoted companies in the restaurant and food business. And if you look at those, because you can look those up on the stock market, if you take the averages across the sector, you'll find that the average net profit of the restaurant sector is around 5% or a tad less. Whereas in general, that's about half what it is for the overall FTSE 100 or Standard & Poor 500 companies. Um, so it's clearly found it fairly low. And you've got to remember that these are quoted public companies. So these are large companies. These, these are going to be your chain restaurants, basically. So imagine what it's like in a small independent where you don't have the mature processes, the economy of scale, you know, and so on. It's going to be on average less. And certainly uh, in very high-end fine dining restaurants, I, I know for a fact that restaurants are essentially are, are owned by, you know, usually a wealthy individual who is, it's, you know, doing it for, well, I guess, fun, I suppose. It's certainly not for money. And I suppose those kinds of restaurants, it's a little bit like how it used to be with fine art artists back in the sort of Middle Ages where, or, or a bit beyond the Middle Ages, where you would have some sort of patron, you know, where you'd have some sort of lord or duke or or whatever who would sponsor art, you know, and that's, that's how it works. And, and these days, people with money who sponsor restaurants. Yeah, one of the chefs I spoke to, he, he summed it up quite neatly. He said, look, people just... People won't pay what it costs 
to make the food. My name is Robin Burrow. Um, I'm a senior lecturer in organization studies at the University of York. What, what ends up happening is that people are doing more and more and essentially doing more and more for free. Okay, so you, you get a set number of hours that you're paid for. Uh, and this isn't true in every place in the world. Um, France in particular has been quite good at reining in the kind of, you know, the free labor, you know, the, the unpaid overtime aspect of the industry. But in other places, you know, you'll get paid for 35 or 40 or whatever it is, but you'll work upwards of 80. Uh, and essentially it's free, you know, free labor. And that that is going into producing the world's best food, essentially. Uh, and so so this, this, this simple fact that economically they can't survive on what people will pay will mean that, you're, you know, people will have to work harder uh, to do it. Robin and his colleagues have conducted extensive interviews with chefs at elite restaurants around the world. His research explores what he calls extreme work, and being a chef at a fine dining restaurant certainly fits the bill. And, you know, they're talking about, like, degrees of obsession that, you know, I can only dream of, you know. I mean, they're talking about literal punch-ups over the colour of pea puree. Yeah, just this, this kind of ultra-extreme culture where they're just obsessed with, you know, everything. And they're talking about, you know, working to create the best blueberry tart in London and just being so ultra-excited that they've... They've made it. When was the last time you heard an anecdote from something in Kitchen Life that just made your jaw, you know, drop to the floor kind of thing? The most extreme one I heard recently was, you know, one chef, you know, who was now one of the world's best pastry chefs. And he was talking about uh, a section in his career where, you know, he was just being essentially abused by this kind of ultra elite mentor. You know, he'd overfilled these quiches. Uh, and the example he gave was he they, they gave him a straw and they forced him to to suck the filling of, of the quiche out, but not get any into his mouth. So he had to literally just inhale it, lift this a small quantity of the mixture out, and put it back in the pot. And he had to do this with however many quiches he'd made. And it's just he was just ground down by this this guy um, and quit uh, as you would. You know, you know, it was just one of many different things that he was you know just bullied to within an inch of his life. Having simmered in tension all evening. Gordon Ramsay finally explodes. Hey, you. Arsehole, you lost it again. You've lost it again. What's your big deal? Why don't you f*** off home, then? Go on, f*** off home, then. Hey, arsehole. Why don't you f*** off home, then? Why don't you f*** off home? Why are you f***ing up? Have you lost it? No, Gordon. Well, f***ing wake up, dickhead. Yes, Gordon. What's the big deal? Why don't anyone f***ing so do far Do you want to go home and cry to mummy again? Like a big in worse, no, guy puts himself in this shit the kitchen, stands there bubbling like a f***ing baby. You got any bite back as a guy? You got any bollocks, you? Yes, Have you f***? That was Gordon Ramsay in the 1998 documentary Boiling Point. This is Ramsay before he became the overly televised caricature of himself. Ramsay as an authentic, sadistic bully, making a bid for his third Michelin star. I mean, they organised their entire career around kind of get one, two or three Michelin stars. And if they get one, then it's almost not enough. You know, you say that a lot of people will say, you know, they, they don't just want one, they want three. Uh, I mean, nobody gets three, really, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, there are so few restaurants, that will, but that, that's what people are kind of aiming for. And you create this like, this weird world where you're almost like, whatever you do, you're doomed to fail because, you know, I mean, you, know, you, you, know you, you, you get it, 
and then you've got to keep it. And if you lose it, that's the end of your career. You know, if you get one, you've got, well, now you've got to get two. Robin's work shows how the competitive elitism of fine dining enables the obsessive, perfectionist culture of chefs, which in turn can create a toxic environment in the kitchen. In his research, Robin is particularly fascinated by the extent to which suffering becomes the personal identity of an elite chef, where the experiences and the effects of stress and bullying become badges of honour. And there's a guy talking about how you know he's in a kitchen, he's doing his job, he's kind of a you know middling grade uh, in the kitchen, and you know the head chef just comes in and he's absolutely off you know off the scale in terms of like anger and frustration. He says it all just explodes, and this guy like you know literally grabs him by the throat, holds a knife to his throat, and basically says, you know, I'm, I'm going to kill you. You're screwing everything up. This is all your fault. Of course, it was actually the head chef's fault. You know, he was winding everyone up in the kitchen. It was a complex thing anyway. So he has this knife to his throat, and he goes, yeah, yeah, it was traumatic. But then he's like, but it was great. You know, I got promoted. You know, they thought, hey, this guy is tough. He can take it. Let, let's get him into the big, big restaurant, you know? It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Amazing. Um, I mean, not amazing, insane. But, uh, like, so, like, I'm sure everyone hearing this will have a similar question, which is just, like, why? You know, if you're trying to produce literally the best food in the world, that people will fly, you know, if you're working in London, you know, people will be flying from New York, from uh, from Tel Aviv, from, from from wherever, just to eat the food. And and in that context, you know, if you have that kind of, I guess, status in the industry, at what point does, does something become too much? And I think it, in many contexts, it, it kind of almost becomes warped. You know, you, ha- you have essentially a kind of very divergent moral context where, you know, there are very few limitations. And of course, that just gets bound up with kind of aspiration and, and, and things like that. I mean, that's just one element, but it's, it's a complex, complex problem. Elitism expressed and manifest in the price of a meal demands perfection and novelty. Perfection and novelty create extreme workplaces. Extreme workplaces create traumatized chefs. And that brings us back to the bear. Why are you serving broken sauces? Why? I get it. You have a short man's complex. You can barely reach over this fucking table, right? Is this why you have the tattoos and your cool little scars and you go out and you take your smoke breaks? It's fun, isn't it? But here's the thing. You're terrible at this. You're no good at it. Go faster, motherfucker. Keep going faster. Why are you so slow? Why are you so fucking slow? Why? You think you're so tough? Yeah. Why don't you say this? Say, yes, chef. I'm so tough. Yes, chef. I'm so tough. Say, fucking yes, chef. I'm so tough. Yes, chef. I'm so tough. You are not tough. You are bullshit. You are talentless. Say, fucking hands. Hands! Uh, so then my final question was like, I don't know how you would answer this, so it's a bit of a vague question, but yeah, it's just like, who or what is all of this for? So, okay, two answers, I guess you could say. One is obviously is for the customers, right? So people, you know, the chefs are cooking. They want to create the best food for you and I to, to go away and enjoy. And, 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 and a lot of them will say, you know, they, you know, it's all about the customer. It's all about, you know, they want to make people happy. You know, they want people to come in, enjoy it, and just be glad that they came and, and they dined somewhere and they had a nice time. That's one argument. The other, the other argument is equally well represented, I'd say, in the interviews that I've done is, you know, the chefs, they cook for each other. You know, they, they cook to show off. They cook to, to prove what they're professionally capable of. They cook to make a name for themselves. You know, I think that's true as well. At the end of the day, how many of our customers understand and appreciate what we do for them? They don't really understand what it's all about. They think it's just so glamorous because what appears in front of them is very nice. No, maybe. And it's very hard for them to ever understand unless they've actually worked in the kitchen and been obsessed with food like we are. That was Marco Pierre White explaining to his mentor Raymond Blanc that only other chefs truly understand his art. 
It's funny. It's funny that you didn't mention profit or like money or economic motives because I mean I interviewed a guy called Andy Haler. I mentioned I kind of asked a similar question. He also didn't give an economic answer, and I was like, "Why didn't you mention profit?" And he was like, "It's just a terrible place to invest in if you want to make money. Like fine dining is not a place to make money. It's a status thing." It's a hundred percent that. All right, um, and I hundred percent agree. Everyone I've spoken to as university, I think there's only there's only one restaurant that I could say hand on heart that people have told me makes money. Yeah, everyone has just said that they just they just lose money, right? They just they're, they're a sinkhole. They can never turn a profit, and the only way they're successful is if they set up some kind of deal. If they're in a hotel, they get free rent, so they're not actually paying the cost of being in a you know an ultra expensive you know inner city capital city location. Or if they got like a chain of bistros down the road that, that fund, you know, they plug the gaps in the balance sheet, the bistro bankrolls the three Michelin star or the two Michelin star place. And the only way you can make them work is relying on people to work for free, basically. And even then they only just make money. So in the language of modern economics, however, we would say that all of this behavior is incredibly irrational. Completely irrational. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me at all, which is why it's so interesting. All right. So in the same way, you know, the, the, the artistry, you know, they, they, they never get paid what they're, they're worth. You know, these people are, are on this psychic odyssey and we, we revel in their journey and, you know, we enjoy the outputs and, and I don't ever want to be part of it. <laughs> I feel conflicted about fine dining. On the one hand, fine dining is a status industry. It's an enterprise that enables an elite group of consumers to exhibit their relative status and wealth. It's an intense, competitive environment in which chefs pursue their mental odysseys, gaining the respect of their colleagues and a small group of reviewers through skill and bloody suffering. Fine dining is also a status industry for restaurant owners who, as we've seen, don't expect to make much profit, but who want to associate themselves with a chef or a restaurant. That's one of the reasons we see more and more examples of globalized fine dining appearing in places like the Gulf. The growth in fine dining restaurants reflects the inequality in our society, where increasing numbers of people, including those in richer nations, are suffering food-related illness, while the very well-off can afford to bathe in the luxuries of pleasure and good health. But does that mean that what comes out of fine dining the experience of being served some of the most exceptional food that you'll ever eat has to be bad. Again, I feel conflicted about this. It's hard to separate the toxicity of many fine dining kitchens and contemporary food inequality from the product of fine dining itself. Nevertheless, having been privileged enough to have eaten in some elite restaurants, I feel compelled to say that these have been extraordinary culinary experiences. I know firsthand that chefs working in these restaurants are some of the most highly skilled, passionate craftspeople that you're ever likely to meet. In fact, as pretentious as it might sound, perhaps chefs are the artists that they so often claim to be. As a breed, they are rarely motivated by money. Even with huge waiting lists and high price tags, fine dining restaurants struggle to make a profit. So what if we viewed the industry as part of the arts? What if we thought of food in the same way that we think of theater or dance or painting? And what if public bodies funded fine dining much like states sponsor artists and galleries? The distinction between professional chefs and domestic cooks is often gendered and elitist. But I think most people would accept a distinction between a professional actor who has devoted all of their life to perfecting their craft and a non-professional actor who performs for their friends at parties or in the local Christmas panto. 
perhaps seeing fine dining as an art form might be a route to democratizing it without ever losing its exceptional qualities, making fine dining the kind of special occasion event that Andy Haler describes it as, rather than the elitist status industry that it is now. What if the intense skill, novelty, and quality of fine dining was an experience that could occasionally be enjoyed by all? You've been listening to The Full English, produced and presented by me, Lewis Bassett. Forest DLG does the mixing and the sound design. You can follow us on social media at fullengpod. And to see credits for the clips used within this episode, please see the show notes.